strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here on uh, Arundel Country here in the Red Centre in Mbantua, Alice Springs. We are broadcasting to you here in Alice Springs on 8 FM and also to all nations across the country on uh, Vast Channel 911. We're also coming to you uh, online via our uh, website at karma.com.au. Today is uh, Thursday, the 6th of June, 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling, and you'll have my company up until uh, 12 o'clock this uh, morning here for Strong Voices. Well, coming up on the program today, we're going to be hearing from uh, Western Australia's Police Commissioner, Chris Dawson. Uh, in Western Australia, there has been uh, quite a shift in terms of the way in which they're looking to deal with Aboriginal people and they're looking to uh, grow those relationships with uh, the mob across the state. So we've seen measures such as uh, Aboriginal flags being permanently flown across all police stations as uh, a sign of respect and other measures that are going to be in place in terms of looking to address some of those uh, incarceration rates of uh, Aboriginal people across the state. We're, of course, as well going to be hearing about uh, a very interesting uh, process that's happening on social media in particular on Instagram. Um, There's a page called uh, Titters for Titters, which is looking to inspire people from all over the country and and started out as posting a few stories and and now has uh, over 10,000 hits sharing posts on health, education, art, social justice and sport. And it's all about uh, continuing the uh, hard work Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women uh, showcasing the work that uh, the hard work Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women do. As we know, uh, last year, I believe it was last year's NAIDOC theme, we saw uh, because of where we can, well, we saw that recognition of uh, Indigenous women right across the country. So it's looking to continue that trend. We're going to be hearing about uh, one of the Aboriginal sisters who started up that program and, and uh, helping share some of those stories. Also, the 5th of June marked uh, World Environment Day here in uh, Alice Springs. Uh, we did uh, have uh, a bit of a gathering in the Todd River. We're going to be hearing from uh, one of the organisers of that event uh, on the show as well. We're, of course, as well, going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> 
Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. Great to have your company this uh, Thursday morning, the 6th of uh, June, 2019. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling. We're going to head into our first story of the show. Well, as we reported in our news, uh, Western Western Australia's Police Commissioner, Chris Dawson, says the state needs to look at how it deals with Indigenous youth crime by empowering Aboriginal communities to ensure people are not only held to account but are also able to be healed. Mr Dawson has also announced the Western Australian Police Force's Reconciliation Action Plan, which focuses on building better relationships and mutual respect with Aboriginal people. Karma's Paul Wiles recently spoke with uh, the Western Australia's Police Commissioner, Chris Dawson. Here's that uh, conversation now. Very happy to welcome the Western Australian Police Commissioner, Chris Dawson, to the program. Chris, welcome to Karma. Thanks, Paul. First of all, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in the West Australian Police Force. How did it all begin? Well, I joined in the mid-1970s uh, and, uh, you know, it was a uh, fairly traditional police force uh, at that time and uh, we uh, policed the largest land jurisdiction in the world by policing standards. It was two and a half million square kilometres. So um, I did uh, both uh, city and country uh, police service and... Uh, went back into specialist areas. Eventually I rose to uh, a position of Deputy Commissioner um, and uh, did that for about 10 years until uh, I went to work for the Commonwealth in heading up uh, the Australian Crime Commission, uh, which was morphed into the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, and that was more about um, uh, terrorism and uh, international drug trafficking sort of type of job. But I came back as Police Commissioner uh, 20 months ago uh, to WA, and uh, it's great to be home. Did you get out into the bush or, you know, out into communities at all? Yeah, look, I did. I, look, I love being in bush, um, and uh, I, both, uh, both my folks come off the land, and uh, uh, while I um, served uh, mainly in the great uh, southern area of WA, um, I... Uh, Particularly as Deputy Commissioner and Commissioner, I spend a lot of time out in the bush and communities, you know, from the Kimberley right through the lands uh, and down south. Um, and so having uh, a really strong bush background, um, I just love working uh, in and around uh, bush communities um, and then obviously uh, had an opportunity to work alongside uh, a great number of Aboriginal people and communities and, uh, and that's uh, quite a passion for me. What did you take out of that? In the early 70s, the term- Territory Police Force and the West Australian Police Force, uh, the reputation wasn't that good around Aboriginal people. Having been out in the bush and then, you know, going back to the city, what were some of the issues that you sort of thought weren't quite right? If I could just take us forward 40 years, when I came back as Police Commissioner, I I went back to one of the uh, small towns I worked in and I asked after some of the fellas uh, that, you know, I'd I'd come across pretty often and through the course of my work had had to arrest them many times and asked after them 40 years years later and uh, said you know how so and so getting on said yeah we're, we're still um, dealing with his family and we're dealing with his grandson uh now and then and then i asked after another fella yeah yeah we're we're dealing with the daughter and the grandchildren as well and as i drove you know the hundreds of kilometers back to perth it reinforced to me that the system's not working if there's this intergenerational trauma which there is which the police have been really policing in a same manner even in my career in 40 years time i thought to myself as i was driving back you know if a future police commissioner asked the same question in 40 years time of a, of a town that they worked in and asked the, after the people that they'd uh, arrested or they'd been victims of crime 
Would anything change? And I don't think anything would have changed uh, and will change unless both police and Aboriginal people and community change their attitude. And I thought, uh, this is why I made this apology speech in July last year, it wasn't for a populist reason. It was because some of my very close dear friends are Aboriginal people who got taken away from their families through the stolen generation time. And often it was police many of whom actually didn't want to do it, but they were agents of a very bad government policy. And that has caused disrespect and distrust between Aboriginal people and police. So we were really trapped in this cycle of repeating an intergenerational trauma um, where, you know, if people commit criminal offences, well, of course police have to deal with them. But as you and I know, Paul, and the listeners know, Aboriginal people are also overrepresented as victims of crime, uh, and they are overrepresented in our prison, in our criminal justice system. So for me, it was about making a stand and saying, look, if we're going to really mean what we say about reconciliation, we have to move closer together, because um, what I saw in the 70s and 80s, I don't want to see keep on repeating uh, in present day. So we've made some steps. Chris, um, a lot of it has a lot to do with education. And look, uh, again, uh, I I know you um, had a different view on institutionalised racism. You thought that it it, it wasn't as uh, uh, profound or or, uh, it wasn't an entity even. But uh, I'm sure you'd have to agree that the Western Australia and the Northern Territory were world champions in locking up blackfellas, and they still are. So... When we look at it that way, there's still quite a long way to go. And within the police force itself, there is still an element that has problems dealing with Aboriginal people. Look, I I don't disagree in the sense that uh, that's why I said we're making steps. Um, Now, you know, you, you may have heard that, you know, I've apart from that public apology where we, we didn't get things right, and I'm not saying we've got things perfect now, um, we have too many uh, Aboriginal people in both our prisons and particularly concerned about our youth detention uh, area. We're up to 7 out of 10 youth in custody are Aboriginal. Um, and in that sense, the police attitude has to change as well. So the sort of steps that I've taken, uh, aside from mandating that we're going to fly the Aboriginal flag alongside the Australian flag outside of every police station uh, and that is an overt symbol of change. It's not flags alone won't change attitudes but there's a message both to my people within the police force and there's a strong message to the community that we have to show respect and acknowledgement. So that's a very important symbol of change. But beyond that, there's got to be, and you've all heard about the RAPs, the Reconciliation Action Plans. Well, I want to put emphasis on action. Uh, And part of that is I've just promoted uh, three of our Aboriginal officers uh, to commission rank. Uh, They're heading up our Aboriginal Affairs Division. Um, So we're we're having Aboriginal senior officers leading uh, a whole group of change within the force and at the bottom end I've got now 50 places which I've specifically dedicated for young Aboriginal men and women and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. They're coming in uh, as school leavers uh, up to their mid-twenties and now now starting to graduate through our sworn ranks and we've got to change from ground up and we've also got to lead from top down. A lot of the problems revolve around lack of 
uh, engagement for young community members. I mean, there's, right. I, there's identity issues, there's, yep. there's a whole range of things I'm sure you're well aware of, but how do you convince government that maybe the strategy of policing in remote is more about engagement at a community level rather than driving in to pick people up to take them out of the community? Well, I've resisted um, any notion that we fly in, fly out, uh, drive in, drive out. I've intentionally placed police officers in our remote communities and in our regional centres. One of our towns in uh, the Pilbara, for instance, um, police are the only government workers that live in town. Uh, And I openly say... I'm not going to move police out of this town because what what does that say to the community? And what I would stress is that um, while we are building and we necessarily have to have more Aboriginal officers, there there are many non-Aboriginal officers that um, are doing a good job, but we're better by working in with the local elders, understanding what what the lands are about, where are the sacred places that they that the police aren't uh, permitted to go uh, without consent of anyone, uh, understanding and inducting them into local language. But if you're of Aboriginal heritage, you will, you have an obvious advantage in understanding some of the familial, some of the cultural differences, uh, so that they can be bridge builders and very much role models. So they're not only just policing, they're running the food bank, they're coaching the footy. Uh, I, I see young men and young Aboriginal women who have engage the youth and you know they're, they're running the footy teams they're, they're taking him away on trips they're, they're doing more than just arresting or summonsing people or attending trauma so i now see in some of our bush locations where they've built up such strong uh, relationships and rapport with the community where young aboriginal kids are running towards police car instead of often running away. And that's the sort of symbol of change that I I want to try and foster, promote and make sure we build relationships as opposed to run into them head on. Historically, there's, you know, obviously many reasons why that happens, but uh, over-policing in in, in the cities, um, you know, Perth in particular, I mean, uh, again, you know, there's a long history there of the over-representation of young Aboriginal men and women uh, appearing before the courts. I mean, obviously the police are responding to an incident, but uh, why are there so many black fellas as compared to white fellas? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is there's, there's not good history, but there are proportionally, and I'm just being blunt about this, Paul, there are proportionally uh, many young Aboriginal people that are committing offences more than they should. So we have to obviously deal with reports of crime. And as I've said earlier, there's also an over-representation of Aboriginal people as victims of crime. So... One, we're having far too much um, to do with each other in terms of the criminal justice system. But I do know that when we audited our systems, we found that police were diverting more young people away from the courts if they were non-Aboriginal, but we were tipping more young Aboriginal people towards the courts when we could exercise more discretion. And a good example, which I think is a good one to finish on, is in one of our remote communities, we've got local elders and local community leaders who are saying, hey, look, rather than truck you know, the kids up to a children's court, um, why don't we deal with them locally? Uh, now, it's similar to a Koori court or a circle of elders where they bring these young people before the community themselves, before their own senior members of the family. That's, that's the great thing about uh, Aboriginal culture is that 
there's immediate action. There's immediate justice. Uh, the Whitefella justice system, uh, you know, where you're putting people on bail for upwards of a year before you bring it back before the courts. I'm seeing in that community where the community themselves take ownership with the assistance of the police and saying, hey, look, let's let's hold these people to account, but then let's have some healing and let's put them on country, let's get them engaged in a positive way, as opposed to trucking them hundreds or thousands of kilometres away uh, in detention, and they come back uh, not healed and at times, you know, pretty disgruntled and, and ready to commit and get involved in more criminal offending, then I'd, I'd want the communities to take some responsibility and we mutually can work together as opposed to taking the kids away from the community. On that note, West Australian Police Commissioner Chris Dawson, many thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. That was uh, Karma's Paul. I was speaking with the uh, Western Australia's Police Commissioner, Chris Dawson. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari, and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Yes, that's right. You are listening to Strong Voices this morning. It's great to have your company. You're here with me, Kyle Dowling, and I'll be taking you up until 12 o'clock today as we play you a range of different stories on the program. We are going to head into our next story now. Our two Aboriginal sisters have created a social media page to celebrate the positive work of women across the country and sharing their stories. The uh, Instagram page is called Titters for Titters and it was created by uh, a Camilleroy Dungadi woman, uh, forgive my pronunciation, uh, Marley Silva, as well as uh, her sister, her younger sister, Keely Silva. Karma Zarina Walker did have an opportunity recently to sit down and speak with uh, Marley about the page. My name's Marley Silva. I'm a Camilleroy Dungadi woman who's based here in Sydney. My mob comes from Moree. They're the French family from Moree and um, the Silvers from Kempsey. So that's, that's where my mob's from. But yeah, I've been born and raised down here in Sydney. Yeah, so I work as a consultant for an Indigenous agency uh, based in the Sydney city. Uh, we do a lot of work with community, which is a lot of fun. But um, my side hobby, I guess, which is kind of growing more and more, and it feels like it's, it's taking up a lot more of my life, which is super exciting, is I run a social media initiative called Titters for Titters, which is all about empowering our women and girls, and we share lots of stories on our Instagram and Facebook page about different deadly women doing amazing things all across the country. How did this concept um, come about? It kind of came to me at the end of last year, because you know, how last year's NAIDOC thing was because of her, we can. Um, I was a little bit worried that when it ended, we'd lose the space to share a lot of our stories. There wouldn't be as much of a focus on our women anymore um, when we came into 2019 and the the, uh, theme would change. So I was kind of sitting on that thought for a while and I wondered what I could do that would help hold that space for us. And... I thought, you know, what's in my pocket every day? It's my phone and, you know, I can just set up an Instagram page and start by sharing the stories of the women that I know and we'll just see what happens. And I just said it to my sister over breakfast one morning and told her she had to be a part of it with me because I'm the big sister and you have to do what I say. (laughs) And she did and now we've got uh, 10.2 thousand followers, you know, and we've been able to share a couple of hundred stories of different women from all over the place and I definitely didn't think that, this would happen this quickly, but it's really exciting. And just for yourself, like, how's the response been um, from people from all over the country? Uh, how's the feedback been from, from Mob? It's been really positive. I was actually at a friend's birthday on Saturday, the Saturday just passed, and um, I met a girl there who was from 
down the south coast of New South Wales, and I'd never met her before, but she said, yeah, I actually know who you are because I follow Titters the Titters, and I was like, oh, I got recognised. <laughs> um, but she said to me, I think she's like a perfect example of what we're trying to do because she said to me that she just moved away from her community for work, and she was starting to feel bit lonely because she was detached from her community and from her family and but it was nice to have that little bit of comfort of this like online community that we're building and be able to see the stories of of our women and she said it just made her feel like she was a part of something even though she was away from what she'd grown up in and you know where she was from so to me that's the best kind of feedback we can get like if we can make other women feel a little bit better when things are a bit tough or, or we can be a, a positive break in your Instagram feed or whatever, like that's, that's perfect for me. You know, being a young Aboriginal woman, what are some of the issues in Australia at this moment that, that affect you in some way? The one that immediately comes to mind and I guess the one that I, I lose a bit of sleep over is the mental health crisis that we're seeing with a lot of our young people. So many of them feel hopeless and lonely it seems that they decide um, to make a, a pretty permanent decision about a, a temporary problem which is suicide and it's a horrific thing and I, I unfortunately don't know a single buffalo that isn't affected by this in some way and I just think that it's a real crisis, it's an epidemic and it's something that we we need to address right now. You know, there's a lot of other stuff that's obviously going on. Our incarceration rates are also really horrifying and when we start thinking about the ways that climate change is affecting our country and our way of living, that's really daunting as well. But I'm really committed to being able to have the conversations around how we can make each other feel more included and more happy and be able to seek help for their mental health. Definitely uh, a very important issue. And, and like you said, it, if, it affects all of us in, in some way or form. Uh, what do you think about the relationship uh, between, you know, black Australia, the non-Indigenous people? And uh, I mentioned to you before that I came across your article in the Sydney Morning Herald. And you mentioned that uh, non-Indigenous people have to treat the problems of Indigenous Australia as um, their own. And can you just uh, elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, that's one I keep saying everywhere because when I think about the stories that we're telling on Titus for Titus or just so many of my peers and other more telling amazing stories, as much as they are for us to feel inspired and to feel confident and stuff, it's, they're also targeted at the rest of Australia. And when I talk about the rest of Australia, I talk about the people who are like the fence sitters. That's how I think about them. There's kind of the 10% of Australia that is very far away from us who are kind of the super racist and kind of lost causes that we don't we shouldn't worry about. There's the 10% who include us and a lot of our allies who are already with us and walking this journey forward to a better day. But then there's the 80% in the middle who kind of don't know a lot about what's going on or don't think that they should care about it. To me, they're the ones that we need to walk with us because we only make up 3% of the population. So we need that majority to come with us. And the way to do that is for them to read about our stories, read about the issues that we're facing and the ways that they can help and take it on as their responsibility as an Australian. When we talk about them, our mental ill health crisis or any of that kind of stuff, that should be stuff that you feel emotional about too, whether you're black or not. This is a problem that is affecting our entire country and that's what I mean when I say that. I, I mean that we've got to come together and our non-Indigenous people have to step up and, and really want to work with us. Who are people that inspire you? Ooh, I find that I'm inspired nearly by every story that we share on our page but I guess growing up the people who inspired me the most were 
the people in my family. So I was really inspired by my dad and his story and the, the obstacles that he overcame as a young Aboriginal man growing up below the poverty line and then being able to escape some, you know, not the best start to become a professional rugby league player. And then now he's a police officer who's kind of really committed to building better relations between us and the police and without him ever like sitting me down and being like this is what you have to do like he showed me um, what it means to be a proud Aboriginal person and the duty that I have with the opportunities that I've been given to give back. I suppose when we're talking about social media how important do you think it is when we're able to use our social media on a platform just like you're doing and when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues? Social media can be a scary place sometimes and it can be toxic and there's trolls and all that kind of scary stuff. But And I'm seeing a lot of different Aboriginal businesses and movements and charities and things like that use social media in a really good way. That's getting our stories out to so many more of our people really quickly. Because it's so easily accessed by a lot of people, it means that we can feel like we're closer together, even though we're geographically really spread out. I get messages from people in Cape York about what's happening up there, or, you know, we've done stories on the Kimberleys, which is so far away from where I am, but I can get that straight away because it's instant, and I can talk to people that quickly just via my phone. So something like social media, you can make things go viral, because it's quite democratic, I think, social media. So what is important or what goes viral is very much in the hands of people. And if we are putting out our stories out there, they can be picked up and seen by people all over the world. And that's the power of social media. So if it's done in the right way and it's done to build positive things and not to build negative ones, then it can be really, really cool. I was just coming across like seeing young Aboriginal people creating their own business. What's your thought on yeah, Aboriginal businesses on the rise? Oh, it's so exciting. There's so many things that are going on and I'm excited all the time by seeing all the new things that pop up. And I think that when, I'm very biased obviously, but when we do something, it just seems that little bit more special or something, you know, even if there is a different organisation that's doing something like it, I don't know. And I feel like there's um, a lot of empowerment that comes with people who can have the ability now to build their own businesses and to become leaders in fashion, in homewares, you know, or running different programs or selling anything. Like it just seems we're really taking control and we're creating our, a better future for ourselves. What messages would you have to mob across the country about promoting Aboriginal Australia? Last week I spoke to uh, Alwyn Doolan, who just amazing fellow walked from uh, Cape York all the way down to Canberra. But he, oh yeah, yeah, he he mentioned to me like as Aboriginal people, like um, you know that self determination that we we as uh, people from all different nations ha- really have to f- um, forge that that one thing of 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 uh, uniting together what what would be um yeah an important message from for, from you to all the mob out there yeah my big thing is when you see another brother or sister succeeding that's your success too and uh you should be celebrating them with them and um, trying to lift each other up and sometimes we get caught up in our own little jealousies or we hold on to some things if we've had a problem with someone in the past but we've got to remember that we're not each other's enemies. We need each other to work together to pave the future for our next generations that's going to be even better than ours. Last month was the election and we're seeing Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, you know, step up when it comes to politics. What are your thoughts on uh, politics in this country at the moment? I think on a face value, you've got to weigh up the pros and the cons of the results of the last federal election. 
it's a little bit scary when you think that our Prime Minister a couple of months ago talked about pledging $50 million to celebrating next year the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook coming into Botany Bay. You know, I, I actually 10 minutes down the road from Cornell, so the first site of, of contact, and I, I feel really scared about that. Um, yeah. I just don't think it's a story that we we need to recreate or celebrate. So there's a lot of trauma in that, and there's a lot of lies about that part of our history. Um, and, you know, Cook shouldn't be celebrated as a hero anyway. So that's really scary, but then I also have to go well, a little bit of an upside of what's gone on is like now we have an Aboriginal man who is our Aboriginal Affairs Minister. Mm -hmm. So that's the first time this has happened and, you know, what that actually means, who knows, but, you know, it's better that we are represented by someone who's from our community than not. So it's hard. It's hard because on the night of the election, I'll admit I was pretty pretty gutted in a lot of ways. but I also have to go, okay, well, there's not much that I can change right now in terms of who's actually in that seat as Prime Minister. But what we can do is continue the work that we've always continued and um, just keep building. And, and particularly if the that reenactment that, that Morrison wants goes ahead, we've got to band together. And, you know, I've, I've been telling people if that's what happens, I'm starting another um, Aboriginal 10 Embassy in Cornell, I'm not letting <laughs> it happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll just keep fighting. Like, the, the thing is, you, we, we've lasted this long. Um, yeah. We've lasted longer than any other uh, culture in the world and any other civilization in the world. So, we'll, we'll be able to get through. And it, it is exciting that there's more and more Aboriginal voices in our political systems, anyway. That was uh, Marley, Marley Silver there. She's a Gamilaroi and uh, Dwingandi woman. And she's uh, her and her sister created the Titters for Titters program, a program looking to celebrate and uh, share the positive work of uh, women across the country through social media, through Instagram in particular. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices this uh, Thursday morning. Well, uh, yesterday, June the 5th, uh, was World Environment Day. It's held each year and is uh, one of the ways the United Nations... you know, goes about raising awareness of environmental concerns and campaigns with events happening all around the world. Well, in uh, Alice Springs uh, yesterday, the uh, Arid Lands Environment Centre, as well as the Olive Pink Botanic Garden and uh, the Alice Springs Land uh, Care, uh, all came together for a listening, learning and, and practical environmental activity for World Environment Day. Uh, today we're going to hear from Ian Coleman, who is, who's the uh, curator of uh, the Olive Pink Botanic Garden. My name is Ian Coleman. I'm the curator of the Olive Pink Botanic Garden and one of the organisers of this buffalo bust here in the Todd River here today. Forty people have turned up on World Environment Day to think globally and act locally and take on the buffalo in the Todd River. The Todd River and its river incomes are sacred to the local Aranda people. It's a very important cultural site. And it used to be the food bowl of Central Australia. The ephemeral rivers used to be the food bowl of Central Australia in the old times. Now, much of the uh, big old river incomes are burning down as a result of buffalo grass infestation. So what people are doing over there is they're grubbing out buffalo. So we've got 40 volunteers over there, which is fantastic. Uh, taking action, protecting those river incomes, grubbing out the buffalo, which means that that buffalo grass won't burn 
and conduct the fire up into the river reed gums. Those river reed gums are also the apartment blocks for the animals here. The birds live in them, the bats live in them, and they also used to be a very important um, food source for Aboriginal people as well. Aboriginal community is involved as well, and we have consulted the elders in relation to what we're doing here, and uh, people with special knowledge around plants, such as Veronica Dobson, who advises us on what we should be doing in the river and what plants we should be bringing back into the river. There's particular plants in particular that uh, she wants us to bring back and plant into the river, so we've got those growing, and we've transplanted some of those back into the river already, and we've got more to come. So our plan with the Aradlands Environment Centre and... Uh, and uh, Landcare Alice Springs, uh, together with us, the Olive Pink Botanic Garden, is t- and, the, and the traditional owners and the local area people, is to restore a section of this river and to protect the river egg gums. World Environment Day, the 5th of June, right around the world, people are taking action, thinking globally and acting locally. The theme is pollution, and in particular, protecting trees helps to protect uh, carbon and reduce carbon pollution. We need to have our trees thriving and growing and our local uh, ecosystems thriving with uh, native plants and that will help reduce pollution. This area that you see along here, um, people have been working on that for the last five years. uh, The Olapink Botanic Garden along with the Arid Lands Environment Centre and other locals and we've restored a section of the riverbank there and we're bringing it back which is fantastic and also... Uh, further up on the river there, there's a whole section where we've still got some of those big old river red comes because people have been taking out that, uh, that, the buffalo grass around them and protecting them from, uh, from those hot buffalo grass fires uh, which burn them. So, so we're making some gains here. We're having a positive impact. So it's, it's an example of people can take action and make a difference. Buffalo grass is a terrible invasive weed. It, uh, it's a, a grass that grows very quickly and produces a, a big mass uh, and then it dries off and it conducts big wildfires right across central Australia. And those big hot wildfires, they're not like the fires in the old days. These are hot wildfires that, that, that go across hundreds of kilometres and burn out whole areas and they burn out really important places that aren't supposed to have those big fires like that going through and they burn down big old river red gums and are transforming the ecology of central Australia as a result of these big fires and bubble grass coming in. This river here used to be very important for food for Aboriginal people in, uh, in old times before Europeans arrived. And now there's hardly any bush food species left there at all. And people such as Veronica Dobson and many others uh, who hold that traditional knowledge, uh, they want us and the community to come out and restore this river and bring back the bush foods and, uh, and that's what we're doing. And we need people to help us to do that. If you've got an opportunity and some time, please come and uh, contact the Olive Pink Botanic Garden and come and volunteer and help. It's a community effort. It's, uh, it's people joining together from all across Alice Springs to bring this river back to what it should be, part of the lifeblood of the land of, of Mantua. That was uh, Ian Coleman there, the curator of uh, Olive Pink uh, Botanic Gardens there, speaking yesterday on World Environment Day uh, about uh, the Buffalo Blitz that's happening here in Alice Springs. Strong Voices.
Yes, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio this Thursday morning. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio uh, Karma's uh, Paul Wiles. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Carl. Well, Paul, uh, I understand you have a story this morning in regards to uh, environmental crime. Well, environmental crimes, but more importantly, uh, restorative justice practice. And uh, apparently, uh, according to the University of New South Wales newsroom. This is an opinion piece that came out of that, but uh, Australia is a world leader in using restorative justice to deal with both adult and young offenders, but uh, is failing um, badly in the area of environmental crimes, i.e. addressing offenders who uh, deal with um, environmental issues. And it quotes a case, um, the where was it? The uh, Clarence Valley Council involved offending against Aboriginal cultural heritage um, in New South Wales. Uh, both the Williams and Clarence Val- Valley Council uh, um, were in breach of the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Act. The outcomes reached in the conference went well beyond what a court could have imposed on the offenders. And it gives gives the example where... A mining company built exploratory pits and a private railway siding across areas of Aboriginal significance. The maximum penalty at the time was a fine of five and a half thousand uh, and six months imprisonment. The judge suggested that the parties engage in restorative justice conference, um, during which uh, an amount of $32,200 worth of items uh, were donated to the local Aboriginal people. Um, in Clarence Valley Council, which concerned the council cutting down a protected tree, the council agreed in the conference to donate 300000 to the local Aboriginal community to fund research into cultural heritage. The council also agreed to create employment opportunities and youth initiatives for Aboriginal people. So, basically, uh, while currently... Uh, with many environmental breaches of the law, uh, as in the case in the Clarence Valley, the fines uh, are not very much. But by engaging the parties in a conversation, the outcomes of that type of restorative justice practice delivers a much better return. So um, basically what they're saying is... um, New Zealand is leading the world in this type of approach, but uh, in Australia, perhaps we need to uh, get the mob looking more at engaging in the restorative justice practice where uh, incidents such as, um, you know, cultural degradation and cultural uh, damage is, is committed on Aboriginal land. Now, we do have... I do want to quickly touch on something. We do have less than a minute, so I'm going to have to be very quick here. Uh, Another story that we've seen, obviously, and we've talked about before, is the discussions around the national anthem, as we saw last night in the State of Origin. Uh, Multiple players chose to stand silent when the national anthem was played. Uh, Aboriginal rapper Briggs, who actually performed, uh, opened the actual event itself, has uh, come out and shared his thoughts and is another person who's 
opposed to the uh, the national anthem and in terms of you know some of the lyrics that within the national anthem not being uh, representative with him pointing to specific lyrics around you know being young and free and then pointing to the rates of uh, youth incarceration here in the Northern Territory and incarceration of yeah. the mob across the country. So obviously something where we're going to continue to see the discussions happening. It's uh, certainly a work in progress, I would say. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Well, that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this Thursday morning. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong Voices. Richard